look at the book of Deuteronomy, you can open it up to chapter 12. And we're going to grab some verses. We can go ahead and put those verses up if you want. Thank you. Actually, I'm going to read this to you out of the message. I had you guys turn there, but it just... It's kind of an obscure passage, and it, the message treats it maybe a little better. I want to read the first seven verses. We're going to be mostly right here for the next two weeks. It says, These are the rules and the regulations that you must diligently observe for as long as you live in this country that God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. Ruthlessly demolish all the sacred shrines where the nations that you're driving out worship their gods, wherever you find them on hills and mountains, or in groves of green trees. Tear apart their altars, smash their phallic pillars, burn their sex and religion Asherah shrines, break up their carved gods, obliterate the names of those gods, of those god sites. This is kind of intense, isn't it? Obliterate, smash, tear apart. Stay clear of those places and don't don't let what went on there contaminate the worship of God. Your God. Instead, find the site that God, your God, will choose and mark it with His name as a common center for all the tribes of Israel. Assemble there. Bring to that place your absolute, your offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and tribute offerings, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. Feast there in the presence of God your God. Celebrate everything that you and your families have accomplished under the blessing of God, your God. Come on. uh, Verse 7 is killer. We're not even going to go there to next week, but I just have to underline that for you all. Feast there in the presence of God, your God. In the NIV it says, have a meal in the presence of God with your family. What is worship? Worship is the meal in the presence of God with your family. We'll get there next week. That just moves my heart a little bit. I'd encourage you to spend a little time, maybe with this passage this week. It's, it's kind of loaded. Yeah, so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, talking about worship. And the reason we're going to talk about worship uh, is because it's one of our primary values here at the Vineyard. We have a banner for it. It's over there next to our banner, Presence of God, and before our banner, Community. They just sort of go together. It is one of our supreme values here at the Vineyard. People want to know what we're about here at the Vineyard. Well, we're about the presence of God, and we're really about worship. It's the reason that we don't care to take 45 minutes or an hour in worship. We don't have a prescribed time for how long or how short worship is. Worship is just as long as it takes. That's how long worship is at the Vineyard. Um, and the reason is, is because we, we want to experience the presence of God. We, we don't want just to have an intellectual understanding of the presence of God. It does me no good to understand that God is omnipresent without experiencing the God who is everywhere all the time. Lots of people understand at a theological, intellectual level that God is omnipresent. And then far fewer people have ever experienced the God who is omnipresent. This place, this place, this space... This gathering is a time when we can encounter the omnipresent. 
It's a time when we can encounter the God who is everywhere all the time. And so it's one of our supreme values. But one of the other reasons that it's our supreme value is because something happens when we worship God. There's a transaction that takes place. And it's, it's the kind of transaction that digs out essential foundations for your life. See, here's the deal. When people worship God, they get transformed at their deepest levels. The truest and deepest transformation for, the, for a human being and for a human life is for a person to enter in and to encounter God in worship. And really what I mean by that is this, is when you begin to worship, what happens is you're, you're beginning to cooperate with life as it really, really is. When you worship, you're cooperating with life as it really, really is. You're cooperating with the truest reality. What do I mean by that? Well, for a person to worship, there are a couple acknowledgments that have to be made. They're invisible. They're internal. Sometimes we're not even completely aware of the, of the acknowledgments that we're, what we're making. But when we enter into worship, we're making an acknowledgment that there is a God in heaven and that I'm not him. And that's the truest foundation for everything that is meaningful and significant and actually real to be built on. Everything else is an illusion. There is a God in heaven. I am not him. There is a God in heaven who is everywhere all the time, present with us, even right now. Not only that, is that, but he is a good God. It's not just that he exists, but when we begin to worship, we begin to acknowledge his goodness. Not just that he exists. See, worship is the response to seeing his goodness. So you will only worship God to the extent that you can see and encounter his goodness. So worship is, is the acknowledgement that there is a God, that I am not him, and that he is good. That he is good to the nations, that he is good to people everywhere all the time. Not only that is he good to nations and people everywhere all the time, but he's actually good to me. And when it settles in on he is good to me, that's when your heart begins to change. See, that's the foundation for the truest life. And so when a man or woman, when a man or woman worship, and when I mean by worship, I'm, I'm not talking about just singing the words, but when they give their hearts and their lives to God, they begin to resonate. They, re- they begin to resonate. They begin to, your life will become the harmony to God's melody. See, God's always singing melody. When we begin to worship, we begin to resonate with the harmony. And so if you order your life here, you'll see the rest of your life become ordered. Why is that? Well, the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that in the very beginning, the earth was formless and void. And in some translations, it says that the earth was chaos and confusion. And it says that the Spirit of God hovered over formless and void, hovered over darkness, and hovered over chaos and confusion. And through a creative act of his own will and of his own dream and thought life, he began to bring order, beauty, and creation out of that dysfunction. If you want to have a life that's based upon reality, if you want to have a life that's, that is ordered, that is beautiful, and that reflects the creative design of God, you have to worship. Because when you worship, you come into the ordering, beautiful presence of an eternal God who extends His Spirit over you, and He will begin to hover over you life. He will begin to hover over you at the deepest parts of who you are. You will begin to resonate with harmony to his melody. And everything that is disorder, everything that is dysfunction comes into alignment with him. Everything that is ugly becomes beautiful. Everything that is broken becomes fixed. Everything that is messed up becomes redeemed. Everything that is non-functioning becomes functional. Everything that sucks becomes great. I don't know how to say it anywhere else. 
And so in order to live the life that you were actually designed to live, it requires that you become a person who worships. The Bible says in, in one of those verses in Psalms that's written on doilies and hung in your grandmother's house. It says in Psalm 100 verse 4, it says, you all know this. What? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and come into his presence with joyful songs and singing and worship. And there is, there's a real key there for us. See, we can come into the presence of the ordering, creative, beautiful one and become ordered, creative, and beautiful. We come into his presence by having a thankful heart. See, a lot of times we feel like God's a million miles away when the truth of the matter is he's only as far away as gratitude. See, in the kingdom of heaven, thankfulness is the password at the door. You want to get into God's presence? You just get thankful. He'll show up. And it's really simple. And you don't even have to be religious about it. You could be sitting at your dinner table and you can, uh, some of you in the room have experienced this. You can sit at your dinner table with a couple of your friends and you can begin to talk about the goodness of God. And suddenly you become aware of the God who was always there. You just entered his presence. And when you enter his presence, you've actually allowed the door of your heart to, to open so that he can enter your presence. You've given him access. You get transformed. There's another verse I want to bring to your attention before we get into the verses that we read a few minutes ago uh, that kind of sets this up. Um, You understand here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, this is the beginning of God's people uh, actually living in the land. This is the beginning of God's people uh, beginning to take possession of the land that God promised to their forefathers, specifically to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you father of nations and I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a territory. Abraham, why don't you go walk around every place that you walk around, I'm going to give it to you. And this is the beginning of God's people uh, beginning to live in the, in, the, in the land of God's promise. Up to this point, they've been slaves in, in Egypt for 400 years. And when God began to set them free, he said something really interesting to his redeemer, Moses, he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1, I want you to go to, I want you to, go to uh, Egypt. I want you to go to Pharaoh. And this is what I want you to tell him. Let my people go so they can come out and worship me. Let my people go so they can come out and worship me. That's a really important verse because everything that we're reading here today in Deuteronomy chapter 12, everything that we're reading, uh, we're reading it from the descendants of those people who were redeemed, who were who were stolen away from Egypt, stolen away from the most powerful oppressor in all of the world. And the reason that God wanted to steal them away and give them a land and say this to them is because he wanted a people who could come out and worship him. So I want you to keep that in your mind. So right now we're looking at a passage and we're looking at a people who are living on the edge of promise. It's important for us because even though these scriptures and even though these stories are about people who are from a long time ago, God's heart remains the same that his people would come out and worship him. We're essentially going to look at just the first few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 12 today. And I want to, I want to highlight just a couple things. 
This is really a passage for how a worship lifestyle begins in your life. Those first seven verses are how a, how a, how a worship lifestyle uh, begins in your life. It's, it's kind of like the manual to becoming a worshiper. And the first and pretty much only thing we're going to look at today is step one. Step one is tear down the altars that have, that, have, that have been built in your life that do not serve and honor God. God says, these are the rules and regulations. Go into the land. And then he says in verse 2, ruthlessly demolish all the sacred shrines where the nations that you're driving out worship their gods wherever you find them, on hills and mountains or in groves. Tear apart, tear apart their altars. See, worship starts with tearing down the altars. Um, and it starts with destroying the high places. Uh, some of this is not necessarily natural to us. We don't live in a culture where we have uh, pagan shrines. Uh, last time I checked, no one's farm had an Asherah pole on it. Uh, we don't go to temple prostitutes these days. And I, for one, am thankful. Uh, but make no mistake, make no mistake, make no mistake, false idols exist. They're everywhere. They've become a little more invisible, or at least we think so. But they still exist. And if you want to live a life of worship before God, if you want to be a person who is given fully to Him in the same way that He's given fully to you, the first step in beginning to live that lifestyle is to go to the high places of your heart and tear down and smash every altar that doesn't serve and honor Him. There's a couple reasons. There's a couple reasons. Um, One reason that God would say it to this particular people, uh, and then we'll look at reasons that God would say it to us. One reason that God would say it to this particular people, one of the, one of the common practices in this day was when, um, when a nation would come in and overtake another nation, they would, they would just simply keep their temples. And the reason they would keep their temples is because there weren't that many buildings. Like, it was hard to build a house. Uh, there wasn't power saws. You didn't have pass-load guns where you could just shoot the framing together. Uh, it, was, it was difficult. And you, so much of your life was was spent simply surviving that if there was a building left, well, then we'll just, we'll just use it. We'll go ahead and we'll take their God out and we'll, we'll, we'll bring our God in, you know. Or maybe we kind of like their God. We'll keep their God and we'll, we'll bring our God in and we'll set them side by side. And so there was this repurposing that often took place. And God says, I'll have none of that. And even today, even to us in the room, God is saying, if you want to be a person of worship, You have to smash all the altars. There's a couple of reasons why we need to smash the altars. There's two in particular I want to talk about today. And the first reason is this. It's because we are a finite people serving an infinite God. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Your capacity as a person, your capacity as a person emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually it's finite. There are boundaries to it. There's only so far you can go. You can only be so smart. There's only so, so much in the depths of your heart in terms of emotional capacity to feel. There's so much in your mind in terms of capacity to think. You have limits and you have boundaries, yet God is limitless. And so God comes to us and he says, I want you to tear down the altars and the idols in your heart because if you don't, there'll be no room for me. To the extent that I have allowed the altar of my heart to be, to be preoccupied with false gods is the extent to which the one true God of heaven doesn't have room to sit in that place. 
to the degree that my, the altar of my heart is filled with inferior pursuits, it will be absent of God. And so really the word of God to us this morning, even though we're a worshiping church, is to re-examine our heart and to re-examine the terrain of our life and see if there has been an idol erected that seeks to steal worship from Jesus, that seeks to steal devotion from Jesus. If there is, it needs to be torn down. And at this point, I don't want to be overly prescriptive. I don't want to be overly prescriptive. The reason I don't want to be overly prescriptive is because we, we do a couple of things. Um, I don't have all day to explain all the ways in which a room of 250 people can erect idols in their life. And if I only choose three ways, then some of us will be like, wasn't me. And if I choose three ways, those of us who find ourselves in one, two, or three of those ways tend to overfocus and miss the point of God's work in our life. So I just want to ask you a couple key questions. These are the kinds of questions that will help you identify where an idol or an altar is that is unholy and non-devoted to God, the sort of things that need to be smashed. Question number one is this. What soothes your fear? What soothes your fear? Question number two, what brings you delight? And question number three, where did the money go? If you're looking for idols in your life, look for the places where you comfort yourself from fear. Look for the places you go to find delight. And then just look at your checkbook and see where the money went. You'll find where you put your trust. God is calling us to to be worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Wholly devoted to Him. And when He says, tear down the altars, really what He's saying is, He's saying, I want my kingdom to come and transform culture. See, the kingdom of heaven, it comes and it transforms culture. If 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 we allow for there to be a mixture to the degree that we allow mixture is the extent to which there will be compromise. I mean, how how many of you guys know that capitalism works and it's probably one of the best systems in the earth and it also oppresses? It oppresses people. Like even now, America is being run by big business. Even now, like, in order for a president to become leader of our country, he has to prostitute himself away to big business to the point that he promises all of his ability to bring actual good and righteous change into our country. See, the system's broken. I'm not beating up on capitalism. I actually believe in it pretty much more than any other thing. But what I'm trying to get at is is that to the extent that we try to marry capitalism, something that we think is good and right, with the kingdom of heaven, there will be mixture, and to the degree there is mixture, there will be compromise. We'll we'll go on thinking it's okay for poor people to be oppressed. 
we probably won't even see it because we're serving the God of capitalism and we're serving the kingdom of heaven at the same time. And one of them will blind you to the ultimate reality. Jesus says, hey, if you've got some pants, you should give them away to your brother. I think you said coat, but I like pants. <laughs> if you've got a couple, you should give it away. Capitalism says, let them go find his own. It will blind you. You will be blind. It's one of the reasons that church has become business culture and pastors have become CEOs. See, here's the deal. In the New Testament, the most common language for church culture is the language of family. Paul calls the church the household of God. He calls Timothy his son. The Bible declares that Jesus is our older brother. Yet the church is run like a business and pastors have become CEOs. You can go into any pastor's office in America and you'll see a book like Good to Great. It's an okay book, but none of those principles have almost anything to do with kingdom culture. And to the degree that you give yourself to them, you will be blind. Jesus says pastors are good shepherds who lay down their lives for the sheep. Not who take out their staves and beat the sheep up. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. So God says tear down the altars because to the degree that we give space to inferior pursuits, it's the degree to which our life will be absent of God. To the degree our life is absent of God is the degree to which true foundations for what is real and for ultimate reality will be absent and to the degree that we will be deceived. So where are your fears? How do you soothe them? What fuels your delight and where did the money go? If there's an idol there, if there's a false god, you need to chop it down. So number one, we are finite beings before an infinite God. That's the reason that we need to tear down the altars. And the second reason we need to tear down the altars is because remnants become a remnant. Remnants become a remnant. I want you to look at the end of this chapter, verses 29 through 32. It's a really disturbing bit here. Remnants become a remnant. This is what God says to his people at the very end. He says, when God, your God, cuts off the nations whose land you are invading, shoves them out of your way so that you can displace them and settle in their land, be careful that you don't get curious about them after they've been destroyed before you. Don't get fascinated with their gods thinking, I wonder what it's like for them to worship their gods. I'd like to try that myself. Don't do this to your God, your God. They commit every imaginable abomination with their gods. God hates it with a passion. Why they even set their children on fire as offerings to their gods. Diligently do everything I command you the way I command you. Don't add to it and don't subtract from it. Why do we need to tear down the altars in our life? Because remnants become a remnant. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the remaining artifacts of false idols, of false gods, the remaining artifacts of that culture empower a curiosity that will ultimately lead your heart into idolatry and ultimate wickedness. See, God will not share His space with artifacts or practices that are demonically empowered structures. He won't. The Bible says, set your mind on things above. <clears throat> I love what it says there. It says in verse 30, it says, don't get curious about what it was like before those guys before you. Don't get curious. How many of you realize this? Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but curiosity is not a bad thing. It's actually from the Lord. 
Curiosity is a good thing. It came from the Lord. It's part of the way that his image was placed upon you. Curiosity and imagination, that came from God. But when we go to, when we go to have the, um, the itch of our curiosity scratched in certain places that aren't from God, then we end up with a disease. See, we have an infinite God. And the good news is this morning is this, is that we can place all of our curiosity and we can place all of our, uh, all of our ima- imagination upon him. And actually, when you begin to place your curiosity and your imagination upon him, it becomes worship and it draws you into a deeper place with him. It's one of the main ways that we actually encounter the spirit realm, this side of his kingdom coming fully, is actually through your imagination. I know a lot of people won't tell you that in the church, but it's absolutely the truth. Uh, When you read a passage like Revelation chapter 4, which is incredibly descriptive of God's throne room and, and what it's like around him, Uh, one of the main ways that you interact with that passage is not just by reading it and not just by reading it out loud, but by closing your mind and imagining it. And when you begin to imagine it, it actually becomes more real. He will often draw you into that space. Yeah, so curiosity, curiosity is from the Lord and we need to foster it in good and right directions. If we don't, the remaining artifacts that we place our attention, our affections, and our fascination upon will deceive us. Our pursuit of truth can actually deceive us and bring us into a place where we are slaves to a God that we never intended to give our heart to. See, we can, we can place all of our affections, we can place our imagination upon God, we can place our curiosity upon an infinite, limitless God, and we will never get bored. See, that's one of the main deceptions that the enemy has sown into loving God is that if you love him with your whole heart, you've got to be careful because you're going to end up bored. It's not true. And it actually, it actually keeps us, we will reserve a certain portion of our life at an intellectual, emotional, spiritual level. We'll reserve a certain part of our heart away from God because we're afraid of getting bored, which is really just to say we're afraid of being disappointed. I can promise you this, if you give your curiosity to God, if you give your imagination to Him, if you give your heart to Him, you will never be bored. He is, it is, it is not, it's not a part of who He is. He is so limitless. He's so undefinable. You can give your heart to Him and there'll always be something new. You realize that around the throne room of God right now, there are at least four living creatures and they have eyeballs all over them. Why do the creatures have eyeballs all over them? It's because there's so much to see. It's a prophetic picture. There's so much to see. And the creatures around him, they never get bored. They never get bored. So be careful where your curiosity will take you. Be careful about a pursuit of knowledge. By the way, knowledge is deceiving anyway. I know that sounds backwards, but I meant it just the way I said it. Knowledge is, de- knowledge is deceiving anyway. See, when our curiosity causes us to pursue knowledge in an area that opposes God and His kingdom, we become deceived and we buy into an illusion. Here's the other thing about pursuing knowledge and pursuing truth. Um, truth and knowledge can come in lots of places. There's nothing inherently 
wrong with pursuing truth and pursuing knowledge. There's nothing even inherently wrong with knowledge. But when, when our heart puts its trust in the knowledge that we gain rather than the source from which it comes, we will, we will inevitably build an idol out of that and we will give our life to it. It's the reason that the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. It's the reason, it's the reason that why uh, sometimes the people who have the most answers are the most wrong. Um, how many of you know that? Uh, how many of you know that you can have all the right answers and be absolutely wrong? Only in the kingdom of heaven can you have all the right answers and still be wrong. Uh, one really great example from the Gospels: uh, some guys came. Uh, uh, some guys, Herod came to uh, the the scribes and the Pharisees because he was disturbed about this business with perhaps. A new king being born. And he said to them, Hey, where's this king going to be born? They said, Over in Bethlehem. They had the right answer and they didn't go to see him. You can have all the right answers and be absolutely wrong. And so knowledge tends to puff up, but love builds up. So more than anything else, we're to pursue God with our love and our affections. I I think it's so interesting that... uh, when Jesus is distilling the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. I think it's hysterical that he doesn't say, know the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Why? Because you can know things without necessarily love it, but you can't love it without knowing it. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't say, know the Lord, and he will give yourself the desires of your heart. It doesn't say, obey the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It says, delight yourself. See, delight, that's an interesting word. That means take your joy from it. Get, it means not just know it, but approve of it. That's something, see, you can know things without approving of it. See, my mom and dad told me all kinds of stuff when I was a teenager that I knew was right but didn't approve of. And, and so at times, I even turned my heart against them even though what I knew they were telling me was right. So you can know all kinds of things and never give your heart to it, never approve of it. Delight works the exact opposite. Delight says, I see it, I know it, and I affirm that it is good. Not that he needs my approval, but my own heart needs to give him approval. He doesn't need anything from me. But my heart needs the approval. My heart needs to give him approval. Anything else is the seedbed for deception to grow in. So tear down the idols because remnants become a remnant. I think it's so interesting that God has promised his people a land and a place. He promises Abraham. They get sold into slavery. I think it's so interesting. And he delivers them. And they wander around in the desert right on the edge of where he was going to give them. And then they begin to move into it. And God is with them, like in power, like Red Sea, like manna every morning. I think it's so interesting that God like has water coming out of rocks. It's just one thing. There's a cloud in the day. There's a fire in the night. It's just one thing right after another. And then when it comes up to time for them to possess the land, he's like, you guys are going to do it. And I want you to tear the altars down. I think it's interesting that God, who wants a people to serve and love him, doesn't go in with like his war angel and burn up the altars and smash them himself. I think it's interesting that God reserves that and leaves that for his people. 
When did God give the people His land? When did God give the people the promised land? In a really profound sense, He gave it to them as soon as He talked to Abraham about it. Like, when did you get saved? When did eternal life start? When does eternal life start? It starts when you believe. I think it's interesting that God will give you eternal life. I think it's interesting that God gives the promised land and then reserves an assignment within this gift for you to go and tear down the altars, for you to go and tear down the high places. I think it's interesting. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he leave the altars and why would he leave the snares in the heart? I believe that he does it because it's part of the cleansing process that transforms us into rulers with him. See, when God made Adam and Eve, he says, I just bless you guys, be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth and subdue it. And part of God's plan isn't just that we would would love him, but that we would, in loving him, gather his heart. And in gathering his heart, we would become co-laborers with him and co-rulers with him and so god reserves part of the assignment something that it would seem like why isn't he doing that he reserves it for us because he wants us to go in and and tear it down and smash it not only that but when we begin to take authority over the high places when we begin to take authority over the altars of our heart there's something that happens and it's actually it actually becomes a barometer for where we're at with the lord it becomes a barometer it's a barometer for how his word has gripped us. I also want you to notice at this end of this passage in Deuteronomy 12, I want you to notice how like quickly his warning escalates. So at the beginning of the warning, it's like, don't get curious, right? And then by the end, it's like this super extreme example. God's saying, don't get curious about like what they did and his example and main reason for not becoming curious is, is really simple and horrible. It's that the people who were worshiping in these places, they threw their children in the fire. This is hard to believe, but at one point, the Canaanites, for a good while, part of their worship was they served a God named Molech, and they would take, they would take their firstborn sons, and they would throw them in a fire, and they would offer them to this God. And God's saying, hey, I don't want you to get curious. I don't want you to... I don't want you to intermix. I don't want you to mingle there because because this is the sort of thing that can happen. So we go from inquiry to child sacrifice. It's a heck of a leap. But it actually serves as a barometer for us to let us know where we're serving false idols. And it also lets us know the ultimate outcome for false idols. See, here's the deal. You know you're serving an idol when your future is being traded for present comfort and peace. That's essentially what happens. When a man is convinced enough to throw his son into a fire to offer it to a God... What he's really doing is he's trading his future for present comfort. And you know you're serving an idol in any place that you're willing to change 
and you're willing to throw your future away for present comfort. You know you're serving an idol when you begin to sacrifice your children. In this case, natural. In our case, spiritual children and even perhaps your own children for the sake of a God that you think is going to give you present comfort. See, the kingdom of heaven will never cause you to trade your future for present comfort. God will never do that. What does that look like? I'll be, I'll be slightly prescriptive here. See, one of the main idols in America is just flat out, it's just money. That's all there is to it. It's one of the main idols in America. We bow down to it all the day. And one of the ways that we, we can trade our future for present comfort when it comes to money is it works like this. Uh, we, we oftentimes, a lot of us in the room, we oftentimes think that our security rests in our income, right? Right? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one paying a mortgage. Yeah, sometimes we think that our security ultimately rests in our ability to procure an income. And in the process of wanting to pay our mortgage, we become a little anxious. In the process of wanting to maintain our lifestyle, we become obsessed with our IRA and our 401k. By the way, I have one. I don't think they're evil. But I'm talking about the obsession. It's the obsession. It's always in the heart. We become obsessed with our, the IRA. We become obsessed with the 401k. And when we become obsessed, as a father, I will start to work. And I will work. And I will work. And I will work and I will work and I will not be present 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 and I will not be present. And the father who is not present because he wants to procure present comfort for his family or even for himself is actually throwing his children into a fire. And there is an, there is a detachment that happens and it is real. We've, we've bowed down to an altar of money and in the process of doing it, we have thrown our children in a fire. Some of you have grown up in homes like that. No, I just want to say something else about that whole scenario. Number one, fathers, your number one job is to provide for your family. That is your number one job. But when, when, when present comfort, when all of our trust gets placed in money, when all of our hope gets placed in a 401k, and we give all of our life away to put it into that thing that is going to ultimately, what is it? I mean, come on. And we're not around and we're not around and we're not around and we're not around and we're not around. It's like taking your sons and daughters and throwing them into a fire. That's just one example of many. See, I know guys, uh, I, I know, I know a couple guys um, who were believers and um, they wanted to make some easy money. So they started, they started studying blackjack. They started studying poker. You know how the story ends, right? <laughs> they lost everything. Why? They wanted to trade the future for present comfort. Lost everything. And the ultimate point here is this, that my people may come out and worship me. That's what God says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that my people can come out and worship me. What's the point? See, they were, they were an enslaved people and God is calling them 
out of slavery for the purpose of worship. What's the point? The point is that if you want to live in freedom, it has to come through worship. Freedom lifestyle and worship lifestyle, they run on the same tracks. They're hanging out in the same room. See, God set His people free from their oppressors for the purpose of worship. And worship is always the pathway to freedom. All of our idols cause us to become slaves. See, worship begins with the greatness of God. But worship doesn't... Worship doesn't get traction until it begins to take root in my choice. God is always great whether I choose to see Him as great or not. So, worship begins with the greatness and goodness of God, but it, take, it gets traction when my choice becomes a player and my choice empowers a kind of lifestyle that leads to freedom. The other good news is this, is that God says that if you'll pursue me, all these things get added anyway. So God says, I want my people to be free so they can worship me. And some of us in the room, we might hear that and we go, man, what kind of what kind of God is that anyway? Is he like the most narcissistic, just like what kind of God would get so involved with some people so they could come out and worship him? Like, is he a, is he a jerk? Like, who is this guy? You ever thought about that? Like God says, worship me. Is it is it because he really needs us? To worship Him? See, it's actually because He's so good and He's so kind and He knows what we need. It's the freedom lifestyle. It's the free place. He knows that the only free place is is those people who have given their hearts to Him. It's the only way to be free. He knows that every idol causes you to be a slave. He knows that Every altar steals the, steals the strength of your life. But he knows that everyone who comes to him is refreshed. He knows that a, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He knows that everyone who waits on him gets strength. He knows that everyone who comes and sits before him has all those things that tend to distract added to them anyway. He knows that the only goodness in life can come from the Father of lights. He knows that there is no goodness apart from him. And so when he says, come out and worship me, he's inviting us into the good kind of life. When God says, come out and worship me, it's not because he really needs anything. It's just that he knows what we need intimately. And so even within the context of a a Sunday morning, um, you know, that 45 minutes that we, we spend giving our hearts to God, that's, that's a transformational moment. We get to decide every single week, how transformed do I want to be? How, mu- how much of Him do I want to receive? How much like Him do I want to be? How, how, how much of His goodness do I want to drink in? How much of my life do I want to reflect Him? How much do I want to co-labor and co-rule with Him? 
how much do I want to how much do I want to come into his presence and have have his light eradicate all the darkness in my life? Like, how far can I go? You know, like we get to decide every single week. And just because you're in the room doesn't mean that you're in the room. This is our, this is our supreme value because because he's 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 incredible. When he comes around, everything gets better. Amen. Amen. Uh, I think I have a couple of te- people on ministry team. If you all want to come on up this morning, uh, everyone else, why don't we stand up? I want to pray for us this morning.